First Peter chapter 4, let's begin in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the less of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough time of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, be fervent or have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Let's pray together. Father, we just can't believe that we get to study your word together, verse by verse as a family, Lord, in complete unity, knowing, Lord, that uh, we get to do so as brothers and sisters here, those of us that know you, Lord. So we just pray, Lord, that you would uh, teach us. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, speak to us and, and make application to these verses, Lord. We pray we'd be changed, Lord, as a result of your word. We thank you that you're working toward that end by your spirit in our lives. We don't want to remain the same as when we came in. We want to be changed. So help us, Lord, to be yielded to you and what you have to say to us so that we can be doers of the word and not just hearers only. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As we've been looking at, Peter is dealing with Jewish believers who are being persecuted. They're going through a horrific time right now in suffering. We were told in, last week, or the, whenever we covered it, in 1 Peter 3.8, he said, Finally, all of you who be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. 
knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. And so he says, we're not supposed to return evil for evil. He's been telling us that. And he's been telling us that when we live a different kind of life, a life that is surrendered to Christ, and a life that is wanting to please God, our whole lives are supposed to represent worship to him. And when we live that kind of life, people that slander us and come against us, their mouths will be shut. They'll have nothing to say because our good works will be shining forth and and we will uh, represent the Lord well. And he gave us the supreme example in last week in, in chapter 3, verse 18, where he said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So ultimately, Jesus obviously surrendered his life over to the will of the Father, and good came out of it. And all through this book, we've seen that if we live the kind of life that God's called us to live, nothing but good will come out of it. Even if it doesn't happen in this life, in the sense of how our lives are are affected in, in in a temporal way, but ultimately, when we go to heaven, we get our rewards. We've, and he talks about this week about when he appears and the joy that we'll have. He's trying to get their attention off of their immediate circumstances and, and onto God and, and to focus on him and the big picture. One of the things we struggle with when we're going through a trial or being persecuted is to get our focus on the big picture in life. And so that's what he's been doing. And so he gives, last week we saw he gives Christ as the ultimate example to follow in his steps, to, to yield to the suffering that we have to experience at times as Christians because we will share in something that Christ experienced. And we can only know Christ in that way is if we go through the same kind of thing that he went through. I mean, nothing close, obviously, to what he went through. But when we suffer, we relate to Christ in a way that we can't relate to him in any other way. And he, and he wants us to get our focus on that. Now, he begins in verse 1 this week as we start chapter 4. He says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves. And that is the word they would use, that word arm, to, to, say of, uh, to describe a soldier that's preparing for battle. He would get on his armor and he would get ready. And so he says, we're to do the same thing, but he tells us how we're supposed to do it or what happens actually when we do it, he says, also with the same mind. So there's a way to think about things when we're going through persecution or going through suffering. There's a correct way to think. And when we think a certain way, it, we arm ourselves. We, we put on armor, so to speak. And, and that helps us go through what we're going through. And he says, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Because ultimately, as we live a holy life, that's going to cause persecution. People are going to say, oh, great, goody two-shoes here. Think he's better than thou, living this, this way, thinking that if he lives a good life, somehow he'll earn his way into heaven, as if we believed that. As believers, we don't. The world thinks we believe that, but we don't. And so because of that, we get persecuted. So we basically saying, if you live a different kind of life like Christ, then you're going to experience persecution, but we're supposed to arm ourselves with the right perspective, that if Jesus suffered and God used that for his purposes, then if we suffer, he's going to use that for his purposes in our lives as well. Sometimes it's, it's 
we can forget as believers that, that God's called us to live like Christ in every way, even, even related to suffering. And sometimes we think that we're, we're, we should be treated better than the Lord Jesus. That's not what the Lord Jesus taught. He taught that if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. If they listen to my teaching, they're going to listen to yours also. No servant is greater than his master, he said. So we somehow think in our mind, we believe it in our, in our heads, you know, like philosophically or in theory, we believe that we should live the same kind of life that Christ did. But when it actually comes to experiencing those things, it feels like the rug's been taken out from under us and we're, we're left wondering if God loves us or, or where is God in the situation. But what's funny is that we can see those same set of circumstances in someone else's life and we're totally fine with that. We don't question God when someone else is going through certain things. But when we go through certain things, those very same things that we're okay with other people going through, or or at least not thinking that God has abandoned them, then all of a sudden, whoa, 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 it's different for us. And we have a different set of rules for for our lives. And he continues in verse 2, he says, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of man, but for the will of God. Of God. So when he says in the flesh there in verse 2, he's talking about as, as our spirits are still in our bodies, we're still living in the flesh, our true bodies, our true, the true identity of who we are is our spirit right now. And so someday our body's going to break down like a car breaks down on the side of a road and we would get out and start walking trying to find help or a tow truck. That's kind of the picture. When we die, we lay down this body and then we keep going. Our spirit keeps going. He says, so we shouldn't live the rest of this time. There is an end to this life. There's an end to living in this tent, so to speak. And he said, we shouldn't live like uh, everybody else lives. He says, with the, you know, with the lusts of men, but for the will of God. There's a will of God for our lives. Maybe you're here today, you don't know the Lord yet. There's a will that God has for you. He has a plan for your life. And you could never realize that plan on your own because you have to go to him first and, re- and find out what that plan is. And it's a beautiful plan. It's a plan that you'll look back and go, I am so thankful that I surrendered my life to him because he made my life a beautiful trophy of his grace. And then he says, verse 3, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime. I love that word enough there in verse 3. We have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. Notice he says a past lifetime. Those of us that know him, we have a past life, so to speak. It's a life before Christ. Sometimes we describe it as our BC days, our before Christ days. And it's a, it, you know, we're a new creation, those of us that know him. Old things have passed away. All things have become new, we're told. Whether, whether we feel like it or not, our designation is that we're sons of God and daughters of God. And he has given us a new life. And he says, well, you've spent enough time living like the Gentiles live. Remember, these are Jewish believers. And Gentiles were notorious and famous for all these just, you know, he lists six things here. They're all in the plural. And they were known for just, just completely giving themselves over to wickedness. Now, the Jews had their own wickedness. You know, they engaged in a lot of these things. But He's talking to Jewish believers, and he said that they, you've spent enough time living for these things, and he starts with lewdness, which is called sexual impurities. That's what that is. Anything outside of God's plan for, uh, you know, that sexual expression within marriage. He says lusts, which are things that are forbidden. 
things that we're, spo- that we're not supposed to have that are forbidden. Drunkenness. And then revelries means parties where you just let everything go and you just no, no self-control whatsoever. And then he adds to it drinking parties. It's a whole other designation here. But these parties that are centered around alcohol. And then he ends it with abominable idolatries. I always think of the word abominable, unfortunately, with my weird mind. The abominable snowman. Wasn't that in uh, Frosty the Snowman? The abominable snowman. But, you know, abomination is something that's wicked, that's against what God wants. And he says these idolatries are something that we were engaged in that enough in our past life. What is, it, what is idolatry? Idolatry is putting something before God. So that could be anything. It could be a hobby. It could be an interest that I have. It could be whatever it is that I put before God, that is an idol in my life. And that's something that the world may never see in terms of what's going on in my heart, that I put something before God. But he says, have no other gods before me. It's one of the Ten Commandments. He's a very jealous God. And he says, you should serve him alone. So he says, don't spend your time doing the things that you used to do. You spent enough time doing that. Now, even in this context of persecution and hardship, the times when we can so often just chuck everything and just focus on our, you know, fulfilling our sinful desires, he says, don't do it. You've lived long enough that way. Don't continue in it. And he says, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Now, this is interesting because the word strange there means foreign. So when you talk about a stranger or a foreigner, it's someone that's that it, from like, a, like you, you can't even relate to them whatsoever. They seem so different. They're from another place. And he's saying, don't be surprised when people think that you're crazy or you're for like from another planet or another country when you don't engage in the same things that you used to be known for, for engaging in. How many of us were known for certain things? And all our friends knew that we were... I mean, whatever it is that we were talking about, whatever sin, we were good at it or we were, that was all, that's what represented our lives. That shouldn't be the case anymore as believers. We make that break, we burn that bridge, and we don't go back to the way that we used to live. And so he's saying, don't, don't let it be surprising to you that people think you're crazy or think that you're, they can't relate to you or they think it strange. He says, God knows that. God knows that they will uh, think of you poorly as a result of that, that you don't run with them in the same flood. Notice the word flood of dissipation. The word dissipation means something that's unsafe. A flood of an environment that's unsafe, that you don't just run right, you know, full steam ahead as fast as you can towards that whole lifestyle of ungodliness. They think it's strange that we don't go right into that. We're never going to reach the world by being like the world. There's a whole teaching going on in the body of Christ now where you need to get as close to the, doing the things of the world as possible to help reach them, to show them you can do a lot of the same things that, that they do, to show that you're just like them. But the problem is we're not just like them. He calls us to be separate. He calls us to be different, not in a weird way, but in a Christ-like way. The most powerful way to be different is to be like Christ because the world is definitely not like him. So we're told that we shouldn't try to be like the world to reach the world. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't separate ourselves in, our, in the sense that we're never around unbelievers, because how could we ever reach them? Jesus hung around sinners. He hung around those that were lost. 
but he didn't let them influence him. He was the influencer. And that's how I know if it's safe for me to, for the sake of trying to reach someone for Christ, if I can be around them, is if I'm influenced by them. If I'm not influenced by them in a negative way and I'm influencing them, I'm, on, I'm safe. I'm good. And I should be engaged with unbelievers to be able to reach them and not isolate myself. But if I get pulled into that stuff and I'm not strong enough in God's grace to be able to withstand that, then I shouldn't be engaged in there. So just some practical things to think about. Then he says in verse 5, they, that is the people in verse 4 that think you're strange, will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. What it says to people when we live a different kind of life that makes them uncomfortable is it says to them, you don't have to keep living this way. There's an answer to the problem of life separated from God. That you don't have to engage in the same behavior. There's a way out. And it convicts them. You know, Jesus said the reason why people don't come to Christ is because they love darkness. He said men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And they don't want to come into the light lest their deeds be exposed. So we can take it personally when they don't want to be around us when we live a different kind of life. But really when they're not rejecting us because they didn't reject us when we were living like they were living. But they're rejecting Christ. And so he says they're all going to have to give an account to him who is ready. Notice the word ready. He's ready to judge them. He's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, verse 6, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in in the spirit. Now, nobody's preaching the gospel to people that are deceased. He's not talking about that. He's saying that they, they had the gospel preached to them, and they are now dead, and God allowed uh, them to be mistreated because he says that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. So God says, I've, I've preached the gospel through my messengers to people who have passed on already. People mistreated them. They were persecuted. So you were being persecuted. Other people were being persecuted. But look what God did. He, he, he showed that they can live a victorious life. And thus he wants to do that in your life. Even though you're being judged according to men in the flesh right now, God wants to show you how to live a victorious life even in that context. And that's the whole point of this passage. Then he says in verse 7, But the end of all things is at hand. That's interesting. This was written almost 2,000 years ago. Here Peter is saying the end of all things is at hand. You know, all through the New Testament, God did not reveal to, to those that wrote the New Testament by the Spirit that, that he was going to be coming two millennia later. They, he always communicated to them for them to believe at any moment Christ could come back. Even the writers believed at any moment Christ could come back. And, and the imminency of Christ's return has been a protection for the church all through the church age. That we could know at any moment, in the twinkling of an eye, he could catch us up to him in the rapture, and we could be with him at any moment. That John tells us by the Spirit that that hope purifies us. It makes us live a different kind of life because we don't want to be found engaged in unholy behavior when the Lord Jesus comes. We don't. We don't want to uh, grieve his heart. So all through the New Testament, Philippians 4, Paul said, the coming of the Lord is at hand. We saw when we went through the book of James, he said, the coming of the Lord is drawing near. 
When Paul talked about the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he said, we who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord will be caught up together in the clouds with him. He fully expected to be a part of that rapture in his lifetime. So for us, it's a purifying hope. And he says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious. And the word serious means to have a sound mind and watchful, which means to calmly pay attention in your prayers. One of the first things we can let go when we're going through difficulty, we're going through hardship, is our time with the Lord. And we we feel so weak. We feel so, we just have no strength whatsoever because we've let go the very thing that gives us our our strength as believers. Or we let the word of God, uh, the study of God's word go in our lives. And Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So here, uh, Peter is saying to them, yes, you're going through extreme hardship and difficulty, but you need to have a sound mind. You need to calmly pay attention. You need to have sobriety related to your prayers, to be consistent in bringing these things before the Lord, to be praying for your brothers and sisters in the context of extreme difficulty. So maybe you're here today and you're going through a hard time. I want to encourage you, guard your time with him. Guard your time with him, your quiet time with him, and your communing with him throughout the day. Guard that time. That is your lifeline. That is, your, that is the very means by which he intended for you to get your strength each day to face what you're facing. So easy to let that go. Then he says in verse 8, And above all things, have fervent uh, And love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Above all things. That gets my attention when he says above all things. That's something he's saying is very important. So above all things, we're supposed to have fervent love for one another. The word fervent, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, it means to stretch. So you're, you know, when you give sacrificially for somebody, it stretches you, doesn't it? It stretches me. It puts a hardship maybe on my finances or my time or whatever, but we're called to, to love and to extend our care for people to the point where we feel like we're going to snap. That's the picture. I just, you know, you're thinking, I can't really do much more. I'm going to break if I love this person any more. And he's saying, that's right. You're doing it right then. You're loving the way you should love. For, and he says, love will cover a multitude of sins. So why would he have to say that? He's talking about how we care for one another in the body. We always think that has to do with loving unbelievers, which it does. Love does cover a multitude of sins in our dealings with unbelievers. But the main context here is talking about how we're supposed to love one another in the body of Christ. And why would he tell us to love one another unless we would not love one another? And why would he tell us to be stretch, you know, stretch out and kind of reach out in a kind of a, a sacrificial way to love if unless that would be, wouldn't be our natural tendency. So he says, love will cover a multitude of sins. Has someone hurt you in the body of Christ? Have you been hurt by somebody? Love will cover that. Love will cause that relationship to be mended. But both have to do that. Now, your responsibility and my responsibility on our end is to make sure that we're right in the relationship, confess our sins to one another, ask for forgiveness, and sacrificially love But obviously the other person has to do the same thing. But we're still called to do our part, even if they don't do their part. But love just 
will take care of all of it. So we're supposed to be very sacrificial. But even with unbelievers, God calls us to love unconditionally. There's a story of Corey Tin Boom, who was in a concentration camp during Nazi Germany. And her sister was put to death. She survived. And she still has a ministry of teaching and sharing about what happened to her and how God used that experience uh, in her life. And years later, after she had been, you know, the war had ended and so forth, she was speaking somewhere. And after the time where she shared, one of the former uh, Nazi uh, soldiers came forward and said he'd become a Christian. She recognized him as one of the ones that mistreated her sister and caused her to, to be put to death. And immediately, you can, I mean, we can't even imagine what she would think of when he's reaching out uh, his hand. But she said that when she, she did it out of obedience, she reached out her hand and grabbed his hand, and immediately the love of Christ flooded through her heart. And she hugged him, and she, and she said, I forgive you. Love covers a multitude. So whatever we're dealing with, whether unbeliever or believer in the body of Christ, love will handle whatever it is that we're struggling with related to uh, somebody else. He continues along those lines in verse 9. He says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. It's interesting that the word hospitable means to, to, um, to love a foreigner. To love a foreigner. So when they didn't have hotels on every corner. <laughs> and so when someone came, especially Christians were traveling, other Christians were expected to bring people in and help them. So it's loving a stranger. But here, again, what's the context? Believers. So there are going to be people that, I mean, you could be in a room and feel like you're all alone. You can be in a room with other believers and feel like you're a foreigner. And that's what we never want here, ever. We want people to be loved unconditionally when they come in, no matter what background they have. And so he says, I want you to take in the person that is is like a foreigner, but is still in your midst as a believer and be hospitable to one another. Notice he says, without grumbling. Now, why would he say that? We don't grumble, right? That's another, that's another church. We don't grumble. That's not us. Oh, we can grumble. We can grumble with the best of them. I don't want to do this. Okay, I surrender. Hope you're blessed. You can just have a horrible heart. You know, part of what we're going to be doing when we're standing before Christ as believers at the judgment seat of Christ is going to be testing our motives and why we did what we did. Was it done in love? Was it done led by the Spirit? We can fool everybody. How much of us outwardly demonstrate grumbling? I mean, our kids can do it. We definitely know when they're you know, I mean, they have the posture you know, but as adults you learn how to hide all that. And we can grumble in our hearts. No one knows outwardly, but God knows. And he can check us and say, hey, you need to do it with the right heart here. Do it as, as unto me. And don't do it with grumbling. So that's a real good uh, exhortation to us. Now notice in verse 10, we're told to use our spiritual gifts during times of hardship. He says, as each one has received a gift. And so that tells us every one of us in the body of Christ has received at least one spiritual gift. He tells us right there, as each one has received a gift, minister it, that is the gift, to one another. Again, even in the context of trials, 
He's already told us to be biblical in how we express one, you know, our, our, our devotion and our thoughts and, and our actions in the context of marriage, in the context of employers, employees, government authorities. He, he, he Basically, let me just say it bluntly. God doesn't really, is, he isn't concerned that we're going through difficult times in the sense that he lowers the bar and expects us to live or thinks that we can live unholy. In every relationship that we have, he calls us to be holy and he calls us to to be as we're supposed to be in any situation, even using our spiritual gifts. You'd think it'd be weird for him to bring up spiritual gifts here, but he knows the body needs to be built up and strengthened, and hospitality is an expression of the gift of ministry, but he knows we need to be built up and strengthened even in the context of difficulty. And notice he says, as good stewards. What's a steward? I used to think it was only, you could only be on a, on, a, on a cruise ship to be a steward, you know? gopher or whatever his name was in the love boat but a steward is a manager it's a a steward is a manager and we're all managers of what what we have god gives us that which we are entrusted with to bless other people and to 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 worship him and he says our spiritual gifts we're supposed to good be a good manager of of spiritual gifts well that requires that i know what my gift is it requires or at least have a desire to learn And it requires me to be willing to use it in the context of with other believers around. And then he tells us to have something in mind as we're thinking about how we're supposed to be managers of spiritual gifts. He says, of the manifold grace of God. This is an interesting word. The word manifold. Now, you guys that like to work on cars or women that like to work on cars, there's a manifold somewhere in that car. That shows you how much I work on cars. There's a manifold, I've heard. But... This is talking about something entirely different, obviously, but it, it means multicolored. I'm not old enough to remember uh, television before color. But when that came out, when it, when it was, you know, late, uh, Technicolor, ooh, they were advertising it and stuff, and, and it changed the whole dynamic of the, the, the experience of watching TV, things in color, right? Because it, 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 it brings, it represents reality a lot better because our world's in color or how we ex- perceive this world is in color because of how God made us. And he's talking about the grace of God being multicolored, which means that there's so many different shades to it. There's so many different ways that he applies grace to our lives in, in, in demonstrating those gifts that he's given us, that we have to remember that he'll give us whatever grace we need, whatever shade of grace we need to demonstrate the gifts that he's given us in the body of Christ. He'll do it. We are managers of God's grace, but he'll give us, I mean, God's gifts, but he'll give us all the grace needed to express those gifts. Now notice in verse 11, uh, Peter provides examples of using our spiritual gifts properly. In verse 11 he says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. So really, when you say, when he says, if anyone speaks, or with anyone ministers, that pretty much sums up all the gifts of the Spirit, for the most part. You're either ministering, which means to serve, or you're speaking, 
There, there are spiritual gifts where you're speaking, the gift of prophecy, the gift of word of knowledge, word of wisdom. Sometimes faith is, you know, you're engaged in expressing how great God is and how big he is and so forth. The gift of mercy can be expressed verbally or uh, in a serving type of way. But he says, if whatever it is that God's called you to do in the body of Christ as good man- managers, understand that God's grace is, is available to you, remember that we're supposed to do it with the ability that God supplies. One of the things we pray for every, just about every Sunday in pre-service prayer is that everyone that serves here would be doing it in God's strength, that they wouldn't be relying upon themselves and their strength or their anything to do what God's called them to do, that they wouldn't have any self-dependence. They'd be completely uh, relying upon the Lord. So he says that if anyone does, you know, engages in a, in a gift of the Spirit that involves speaking, let him speak the very things that God calls him to speak. If anyone ministers or serves, let him do it with the ability that God supplies. Sometimes we can look at what other people are doing and how they're ministering, and we get insecure. Well, I can't do it like them. they do it. Well, God's giving them something else that he's not giving you. You may have the same gift. But God is supplying the strength and the grace to do what God's called them to do in a way that may be different than what, how he's called you to express that gift. That's the whole multicolored aspect of God's grace. He gives grace differently. Very important. He says in the middle of verse 11, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever Amen. And I want to focus on that God may be glorified. Sometimes we can get very insecure about how he's called us to serve in the body. Because one of the things that we see all through the Old Testament and even in the New Testament is that people really sense their inadequacies when they start serving. And they, many times we see it, especially in the Old Testament, they think that God made a mistake. Oh God, you have no idea who you got. You made a mistake in choosing me to do this. Because we're aware of our inadequacies. But God knows exactly who he's getting related to serving. We're told that he's chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Not many mighty are called. Not many noble are called. So he knows that we're just, we're we're really the the island of misfit toys on Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. That's who we are. We're broken people. We're a messed up people. We're not really looked at from the world standpoint as someone that's valuable, that has all these gifts. And God is so wise to do that. You ever wonder why he chose these fishermen for the most part with no background? He chose an insignificant number of them with insignificant backgrounds to start Christianity. I mean, would you do that? These guys that are fighting over who's going to be the greatest? Those guys? And then Jesus prayed the night before he he chose them to make sure we knew it wasn't by accident he did all of that to say look what i can do with little you know he he narrowed down the armies with gideon so that they wouldn't think that they did something that all carries through all the way through the bible into the new testament where he chooses people like us so that he can use us in a significant way so that when he does use us they don't say oh well that guy's brilliant that guy has degrees he has an affluent background or has, from, has a great pedigree. No, they say, that guy used to break dance. And so uh, whatever happens through his life, uh, that must be God. That's exactly what God does. So 
I would say that to encourage you that if you're sensing an inadequacy to get out there and serve and do what God's called you to do, don't fixate upon your inadequacies because God knows those and he can compensate. Because again, he says, by the ability that who supplies? You supply? No, the ability that God supplies. He compensates and gives us everything we need so that we can be successful in how he defines success. He doesn't define success by being perfect in our areas of service. He calls us to excellence, but he doesn't call us to perfection. And he does it by his grace and by his power. Now, in verses 12 through 19, Peter's really going to focus now on having the proper perspective on suffering. He says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as as though some strange thing had happened to you. Now, this is, this is interesting because that's the first thing we think. <laughs> Something strange is happening to me. And again, he starts with beloved, means someone that's loved. I'm telling you something. I love you. I'm telling you the truth. And when people level with us and shoot straight with us, we appreciate it. He's doing that. He said, beloved, do not think it's strange. And the tense is, stop thinking that it's strange. It already, it's not like they haven't started it yet. They've already started thinking it's strange. And he says, stop thinking that it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as, if though, as, as though some strange thing had happened to you. We think, I'm different. Or God's dealing with me differently than he deals with other people. Other people don't have to go through these things, but I do. Or they don't have to go through them as often as I do. There's all these things that we can think of, or it's because there's sin in my life, or I don't have enough faith, and so God is allowing me to suffer more. Understand the love of the Father. Understand your Father's heart. If you have children, you know that your desire is for their good to be realized. And he has greater love infinitely more than we could ever have for our kids. So he says, don't think it's strange. It's not strange. In fact, God is basically saying to us, the, the normal thing that happens for the Christian, if they're living a godly life, is that they're persecuted and they suffer. That's how we engage in that relationship with Christ in the, in the sense of having the fellowship of his sufferings in a way that we can understand what he went through or we could relate to him a little bit better. It's not strange. It's normal. Now, we have to be reminded of these things, like we need to be reminded of everything because we forget, but it's there for us to to know. He says, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Now, it bothers me when he says rejoice in suffering in the same sentence. I don't necessarily want to see that in my flesh, but he says it. And there's two ways that he says we're to rejoice. Notice he says rejoice at the beginning of verse, beginning of verse 13 and at the end of the verse with the word joy. There's two ways. He knows that if we submit and yield our lives to him and we submit to his plan for our lives, even including suffering, that at the end, when Christ's glory is revealed to us, we are going to have joy that we wouldn't have to the same extent if we didn't suffer and didn't submit to that. And he says the reality of that right now should bring you joy. So there's two ways. Joy right now by knowing the end. Again, the whole theme of First and Second Peter is talking about eternity and practical holiness. He's trying to get our attention on eternity. So at that moment when Christ is revealed, we've been faithful, we've, we've endured. He talks about overcoming. There's a virtue of, of being an overcomer. And he says that will bring you incredible joy joy. Now he continues giving God's perspective on what happens um, when we're persecuted in verse 14. He says, if you are reproached 
for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Remember Stephen? You remember Stephen, the, the, the first martyr in the New Testament? He had totally refuted everything that those religious leaders were saying. Saul of Tarsus was there, who later became Paul the Apostle. He was holding the garments of those who hurled those massive rocks down onto Stephen, the act of stoning, which was forbidden. They weren't allowed to, under Roman law, they weren't allowed to engage in capital punishment, but they did anyway. I mean, they didn't even for the Lord Jesus. They, had to, they went to the Romans and so forth. They bypassed all of that this time. They're hurling rocks down on him because they were convicted of what he was saying. And as he's getting pummeled there, they looked at his face and it shone like, like the face of an angel. The glory of God rests upon him. Now, they may not, they may not see the, the, the face of an angel when we're being persecuted, but it's the same principle. The, the, the spirit of glory rests upon our lives when they're rejecting us because of Christ. And he says, you are absolutely blessed. In Acts chapter 5, we're told, after the apostles were rebuked and, and, and chastened by the religious council there, and we're told in verse 41 that they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. It was a badge of honor. They, they rejoiced, and it's that same word, rejoiced that they were counted worthy to experience that shame for his name. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Now he tells us in verse 12, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Or oh, this is back on the Sermon on the Mount. You didn't know you were there, but you, you were there. Rejoice and be exciting, exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So there's a long line of persecuted saints. And so when we're persecuted, we're in the company with them. What an honor. Now to our passage, verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Interesting that he includes being a busybody in other people's matters along with being a murderer, a thief, and an evildoer. It's good to get God's perspective about what we should be engaged in. We should mind our own business. That's a big exhortation to me. I'm sure it's the same for you. God, you know, so you ever been in a conversation where someone's starting to say something, they're going down a road, and the spirit inside of you is going, don't listen to this, you know, lovingly shut them down, and you don't do it. You just let them keep engaged in that gossip. Or you're the one speaking. You start going down that road, and the spirit's saying, stop, just stop, stop now. You're going in an area you shouldn't go in, and you keep going. That's something that we need to resist, he, doesn't, he hasn't called us to be overseeing and, and be engaged in other people's matters there. But he says in verse 16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved... Where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? First of all, he's not talking about being judged for our sin. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. 
He took the wrath that we deserved on the cross. So we're not going to, if we have, if we're in Christ, we've received Christ, then we're not going to have to be judged for our sin. Now, sometimes God will allow us to reap the consequences of our sin, but we're not going to have to pay the wrath uh, that, that, that came forth on, onto Christ's life for us. So what's he talking about here? Well, he's talking about when, uh, you know, notice that he says here, at what will the end of those who do not obey the gospel be? See, so there's different ways that God talks about being saved in the, in the New Testament. Instantly, we're saved when we receive Christ. We're saved from the penalty and the power of sin. There's also the process of being saved or being delivered through, as we walk with Christ through this life. So there's times where he refers to it as that. But then he talks about one day we will be saved in the sense that we'll be physically delivered from this world with our new bodies and be in heaven. And I think when he talks about being saved, they're scarcely saved in verse 18. He's talking about the latter. He's talking about being physically delivered from this world to heaven. So what he's saying is if it's really a hard journey for us as believers going through this life being persecuted and we make it to heaven going through all of that, then what will be the end of those who don't know Christ? And, and so I think that the answer is, of course, it's not going to be good. Just notice the, the verse 18, he says, where, where will the ungodly and the sinner, and notice the last word of verse 18, appear? It's talking about a location. We go through this world with persecution and all that, and God delivers us from this world, and we end up in a location in heaven with a new body. So where will those that don't know Christ, where will they appear? Where will they be? They will be uh, eventually in, in the lake of fire that Jesus talked about. So that's, he's saying, try to get some perspective. Yes, you're going through difficulty. Yes, it's hard. And God brings you through a, a process of difficulty. And if that's hard and you make it to heaven, just think how hard it's going to be for those who don't make it to heaven and where they end up for eternity. So he finishes in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Now, the word commit there is a banking term. When you, when you deposit money into, account, into an account, you're trusting the bank with your funds. And he's saying that if we suffer by doing the will of God, the will of God can include suffering. We see that right there in verse 19. If we suffer, what God's called us to do is trust God as if we were trusting a large deposit to a bank and trust him with our lives, which is infinitely more valuable than any amount of money we can deposit in a bank to commit our souls to him. How? In doing good. See, it's not just trusting him with our souls. It's doing good, as he's been speaking to us about all through this book, doing good and that's an expression of our trust in him, that he will, he will uh, protect us during that. He will give us rewards concerning that. He will put that against uh, that day when we receive our rewards, where we can get our rewards related to what we've done for him by his grace. And then he says, as to a faithful creator. We can't miss where he says faithful there. That's why we can trust him. That's why we can deposit our trust into the bank of God, is <laughs> because he's faithful. He's going to be faithful with our lives in this life and in the next life. He's trustworthy. So if you're going through something difficult today, maybe it's not persecution, but maybe it's hardship, and you're trying to obey the Lord and what he's called you to do. You're trying to be obedient as best you can, and it's, it's hard. 
Maybe people are mistreating you as a result of that. Or you have a hard time trusting that God is faithful and he could be trustworthy with your faith. And he says he is. So it's an encouragement to us. And maybe you're not going through that now, but maybe in the future God will have you in a position and he wants to use this verse to bring, to bring proper perspective in that moment. It's very important. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We are full. Thank you for this great meal, feasting upon your word, Lord. Help us to trust you. You are a faithful creator. Help us, Lord, to glorify you by doing good in this life, even in the context of difficult times. Lord, help us to not be engaged in the things we used to be engaged in. Help us to be free from those things, God. Thank you that you have freedom for us if we trust you and yield our lives to you. We want to live a life worthy of what you've done for us, God. We we recognize we can't do that in our own strength. So I pray that you'd remind us all by your spirit to rely on you to give us the grace and the power for us to live the life that's pleasing to you, Lord. Help us to embrace suffering, Lord, according to how you would have us embrace it. And we thank you that you work all things together for good to those that love you and are called according to your purposes. We're grateful, Lord, that you take those things and you make us more like you because of it. Help us to yield to that and not fight against it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.